0: Now we'll turn to God's word again. We're going to be continuing in our series through Ezekiel. I believe this is our eighth week in Ezekiel. And uh, we will be taking a break for a season uh, from Ezekiel starting next week. And I'll explain more of that as we go along. But I'm going to invite uh, Charlie and Judy Stabilepsi forwards. And they're going to be reading for us out of chapters 14-14. And 15 this morning. Thank you, guys. Hear the word of God.
1: (laughs) Good morning. And certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed that myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with a multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations For any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him I the Lord will answer him myself and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword, and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks the word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they will, and they shall bear their punishment, the punishment of the prophet. And the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, And cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver by their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beast, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, They would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it as I lived to go as the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood, to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by the righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous, disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast, but behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the, for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God.
2: And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God.
0: The grass withers and the flower fades. (laughs) Amen. Thank you for that reading, Charlie and Judy. Well, as we come to God again this morning, He set before us another hard word. This is our eighth week in this Old Testament book, and this could go on. I mean, I think it's not until chapter 30-ish that we really begin to hear more uh, real hope, what we might uh, say. But just so you know, starting next Sunday, we are going to take a break from Ezekiel for a few weeks and we will resume the the book, but only after a break. And so we've got some special guests coming this month, Teen Challenges I mentioned to you, and then Pastor Julius uh, Nehamburo will be with us from Kenya once again before he heads back to Africa. So we'll have a couple of weeks um, to hear other um, places out of the scriptures. We'll be sure to welcome them when they come, please. As we already said this morning, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And last week, some of you will remember I talked a little bit about persecution, and in hindsight, I was like maybe that message would have been more fitting for this week. But for most of us, persecution is not something that we've personally faced. I mean, maybe maybe some of us have. Maybe we've experienced what the video. Uh, referred to as pressure right pressure to conform to things that are non-christian or to ideas that are not biblical maybe that's a kind of persecution we've experienced maybe we've had someone call us a name or lash out at us or you know cut us off and not talk to us and those sorts of things perhaps um but most of us probably have not experienced it in the way or in the levels that many of people uh, across the globe have. Those of us who are Americans and have lived in America for most of our lives have pretty much been what I would call sheltered from that kind of uh, persecution. And we praise God for that, uh, right? But when we hear of persecution, usually we're thinking of people somewhere else, right, when most of us hear that word. But as I wrestled with what to say this morning, I thought to myself. Persecution is not our problem. Though it may be soon right now, it's not a major issue for for us, again, aside from those pressures to conform. But it's safe to say that it's not generally been a major problem for any of us here in this part of the world, I think. Our problem here in America, again, it's not persecution. It's boredom. We, as the American church, are no longer awed, in awe of our God. The American church is bored. Our vision of God has become so greatly diminished. And to get people to come to church, now we must entertain them. God is no longer enough. I've been reading an interesting book in preparation for my time away this week. I'm going to go do some study this week. And this book is titled Suburban Dreams. And it talks about how churches have evolved and changed over the centuries. Very fascinating um, book. One of the things he does in the book is look at the use of space and how space reflects our values Buildings say something about what we value, the way we use our space and arrange our homes and the kinds of homes we build and buy. All these things say a lot about our thinking. This guy who studied this quite extensively, you know what kind of space he argues best fits the modern church? The theater. The theater church in this author's mind. And I think I have to agree, at least for some traditions, this wouldn't be true of every church in every place or every tradition. But church has become more about entertainment than real worship. I think that's our major problem here or one of them anyways. Recently, I went to mid-Vermont to speak to the junior and senior high students and it was their spiritual emphasis week, and we were talking about loving God with all of our hearts. That's the topic that they encouraged me to to speak on, so I gladly obliged. And what I chose to do was to talk to them about common misconceptions about loving God with our hearts. So I came to the students with, I don't remember, five or six or seven misconceptions about what it means to love God with all of our hearts. And one of the misconceptions I talked to them about was the idea that boredom was a bad thing. Boredom was a bad thing. I said, boredom is not bad. So we had this idea that if we're really loving God with all our hearts, we have to be excited all the time and happy all the time and just overflowing all the time. That's a misconception. That is not right. I said boredom is not bad because what it shows us, it's showing us something and one of the things it's showing us is that our hearts are very, very small. Our hearts are small. Our God is an awesome, transcendent, yet also imminent and also close. Amazingly beautiful, wondrous being. And he's made an infinitely complex and beautiful world. And somehow we're bored. If we're bored, it's because our hearts are small. Small. And have become shriveled up. The problem is not really our boredom. It's our hearts. They need more exercise. Our hearts need more exercise. I told the students that the next time you're tempted to say you're bored, just pause a moment. Because I hear this a lot in my home. Right? I'm bored. Probably 40 times a day. And I pause and I say, think about that for a moment. I want to encourage you to do this, especially the young people out there that maybe this may be a word that's like in your top 10, you know, words, your adjectives that you use on a daily basis. Sit in that silence, sit in that boredom, even if it's just for a moment and listen to the silence instead of distracting yourself with some stimulation or some other thing, a TV or device or whatever it might be. Sit in the boredom and let it draw your attention away from the games and the play and the other things that want to distract you and let it put your attention on something deeper. Even if it's just for a moment. We've become so uncomfortable with silence and with stillness and not having something to do. And I told the students, boredom can be a gift that's telling us something about our hearts. It's exposing something about the condition of our hearts. Actually, a number of them came up to me afterwards and said, I never thought of it that way. Thank you. So I was really encouraged by that. But that boredom is revealing, at least in part, that the reason we are empty and bored is because perhaps we're looking for life in the wrong places. And when that's unchecked or unrecognized, it will only lead us to more of the same. More of it and more of it. You've got to have more and more. Because we're looking for life in the wrong places, which then just leads us to look even harder for it in the wrong places if we don't stop and recognize it and hit the brakes, right? Sadly, these tendencies are not just things that our culture is dealing with, but this is true even of the church. So many... There's so much that is in many places, the church is more like a theater in so many places. The church is more like a a theater, a place of entertainment than it really is a place of real worship. And that's really lamentable and sad. We find this in our story before us today in Ezekiel 14 and 15. This is not just a contemporary issue. This is something that even back then. They were facing right at the start of the section there in chapter 14. We have the elders of Israel coming to Ezekiel and sitting before him. Verses three through five make it clear that they desired a word from the Lord, but really in their hearts were only chasing after idols, it says. In other words, they didn't really care to hear from God. There was something else that they wanted. And that's what it means to worship an idol. Right? To want something more than you want God. To love something more than you love God. That's an idol. Ezekiel's been doing a form, as we've seen, of, of charades or street theater. We've talked about this in previous weeks. So maybe this is where some of the churches are getting the idea of theater from, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it is, but is. He's been acting out messages in the streets to communicate God's words to the people last week we saw that Ezekiel was digging through the wall in his home with his hands and we've seen him cut his hair off with a sword and we've seen him you know eat food over burning dung and all of these different things that he's been doing and it's been really interesting and also quite scary and alarming but perhaps these elders here have come just for another show entertain us Ezekiel We want to see another one of those little plays. You know, do something for us. Yeah, yeah, do something like you did the other day. Give us another show from God. Entertain us. Again, as the text says, they were not there to really hear from the Lord. They had idols in their heart. Well, God's response was a firm rebuke. Verses six and seven. Therefore, says, say to the house of Israel, this is God commanding Ezekiel to speak to them. Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him. I, the Lord, will answer him myself. This morning, I want to challenge us to look inside of our hearts again, seeking to to speak the message, maybe not an easy message, but the message that is before us in the scripture today. I want to challenge you to look inside of your heart. Our boredom is not because our God is boring. Our boredom is because we are not actually coming to God at all. Many of us are coming to the altars of other idols, and that is why we're so very bored and dissatisfied. And sadly, many of us think we're coming to God, but in reality, upon closer inspection, we're bowing down at some other altar. So I want us to look at some of these other altars that perhaps we're worshiping at this morning, just like these. Leaders in the exilic community there in Ezekiel's day. They were coming to Ezekiel saying, give us a word from the Lord. In other words, they're coming to church. Give us a word. But there's all these idols that are there. And I want you to ponder. And I'm searching my heart too, right? So we're in this together. We're in it together. I want you to ponder whether or not there may be some other altar that you're bowing before in your heart. I want you to look first at the altar of entertainment. Okay, we've already touched on this one in the introduction. This is the first one that I think is a common altar or idol that we bow before. These elders again here in Ezekiel came to God's prophet as though he were merely uh, their amusement. He was just there for their amusement, as though his word were merely some kind of a theatrical show. Oh, how we belittle God when we treat his word that way. Yes, they came to hear a word from the Lord, but they were there really more for the show, not for the show giver. God's word was not life. It was fun. God's word was not water in a dry and weary land. It was something for amusement when the other things in life got dull. We're a little bored today. I'll try church. Give it a try. God and his word. Were merely the latest TikTok video or Facebook post. Just a diversion from whatever the other things that were going on were lacking. Well, I'm tired of doing that. I'll try something new today. If this is your sense about God, even though you may be coming to church. You're really bowing down at the altar of entertainment. So let's look inside and ask ourselves that question. Again, the good news is we're going to see as we go along is that God invites us to repent. and To say, I recognize it. Please forgive me, Lord. And he will. The second altar that we often bow before in our hearts, even though we may come as it were to hear a word from the Lord, is the altar of what is popular. The altar of what is popular. In verses 9 through 11, Ezekiel speaks again of false prophets. Those who deceive the people with their lies, claiming to speak for God when they do not. And as we saw last week, again, I'm not going to go all into... False teaching, we touched on that last week. One of the common aspects of false teaching is that it is popular. It is a message that tickles ears and lines up with the message of the day, the spirit of the age, whatever that is. And, of course, this changes across history, right? But whatever the spirit of the age is. Many churches have adopted a false message that is popular, Or they've adopted aspects of culture that are very popular to help further their message, right? We could list a whole bunch of those. But the trouble with this is that now you've made it less clear as to why people are actually there. You've muddied the waters. Are they there to get to know Jesus and follow him? Or are they there for the coffee bar and the loud music? Why are they there? (laughs) Many people come under the pretense that they're following Jesus, but in fact, they're just getting their free coffee and T-shirt. Bowing down at the altar of what is cool and popular, the latest trend. And that's an altar. That's an idol. That's the second idol that I see coming out of our passage that we see today in many places as well. And the third one is this, the altar of networking, the altar of networking, I remember not long after moving here, I suddenly had some new friends. Some of these people were not really people who were regulars in the church here, but I would find them being really quite friendly to me. Bringing unexpected and unrequested, might I add, gifts by my home even. I'm not saying that's always bad, okay? Some of you have brought some wonderful and precious gifts. You'll get my point in just a moment. But come to find out, eventually, some of these people were running for local office. And they wanted my support, my vote, as it were, and maybe my congregation's uh, support as well. Now, again, I was certainly grateful for their kind gestures. I'm not condemning their actions. I don't know their hearts or what their deepest motives were. But I do know that some people seem to value the community and the networking aspect of their faith more than they do actually knowing God and walking with Him. It seems as though their deepest desire is not for God, but for the associations they can build in the name of God or at the expense of the people of God, perhaps. The problem is that this is another altar, a false idol that in the long run only brings destruction. There is literally... No benefit to knowing God's people if you don't know God. It might be an earthly blessing to you and they may show you some things that are wonderful and good, but in the end, those people can't save you and they can't give you what you most need. In verses 12 through 14, the Lord says, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithful faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it, man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they would not deliver. But their own lives by their righteousness declares the Lord God. The Lord calls to mind three heroes of the faith at that time and place, Noah, Daniel and Job, men who suffered tremendously for God, who were tested and yet were faithful under trial. Yet God says that if you don't have faith, even if you know those guys, even if you have a connection to men like that, if they're your neighbors and lived in your community, it doesn't mean anything. It won't save you from judgment. You see, judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. We've been talking about this week after week. About how God was warning the people, this is coming, repent, repent, turn back to me, come to me. And they wouldn't. Judgment was coming upon Jerusalem for all of its disobedience and law-breaking. And God said to Ezekiel, even if these men lived in Jerusalem, even if they lived there and were there now, it wouldn't matter. I would save them, but not the city. Now, let me be the first to tell you that knowing any mere human being cannot get you into the kingdom of heaven. So I hate to break it to those friendly local leaders who were bringing the gifts and all of that stuff. I can't do anything for you. I mean, really? Really? That's right. Put it put in a good word. Nope. Sorry. I mean, I can pray, but just like Daniel and Job and Noah, I cannot save anyone. I can't. I'm thankful for that. Honestly, the responsibilities would be totally overwhelming. But knowing me, knowing some other person in the church, knowing the godliest Christian in the world, whoever that might be, won't amount to a hill of beans. And some of us, I'm afraid, are trying to ride into the kingdom on someone else's coattails. Maybe it's your mom, maybe it's your dad or your wife, or your husband or great grandmother who served in the church. It's impossible. It's impossible. There is only one person who can get you into the kingdom of God, into the king's presence. And that is the prince, the son, Jesus Christ. He alone can get you in. If you're looking to get to know someone. Someone to get you close to God, he is the only one that matters and the only one who has the power and the ability. To do that. And in our last point, I'll tell you briefly why. So this is my final point this morning. So we've talked about the altar of networking now, the altar of your heritage. The altar of your heritage. Some of us are putting our trust in our heritage and not really in God. And by heritage, I kind of mean like our resume, our, our past, our traditions, where we come from, our family, even our education, right? Career, those good things we're doing out there. We're looking at things in our life that might make us worthy to enter God's kingdom. And what we see from our passage today is that this is precisely what Israel did. And it was not enough. If anyone had a reason to put their trust in their heritage, it was Israel. These were God's chosen people, his vineyard that he was cultivating to produce choice grapes, And yet here in Ezekiel 15, they have become a useless vine, it says. That's what it says. It's not my words. That's God's words. In verse 4, he says that the vines are good for nothing but fire now. Why? Verse 8, and I will make the land desolate because my people have been unfaithful to me. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Because they've been unfaithful to the Lord. In other words, they were no longer trusting in God, but in other things, bowing at other idols, other altars. They trusted in the temple, in the mighty walls of Jerusalem to protect them from intruders. They trusted in their heritage, their connection to Abraham, people of the past. And sadly, again, even trusting in other gods from other nations. I want you to look inside your heart right now. If you were to appear before God and he were to ask you to give an account for your life, what would you say? What would be the first thing that you would say if you stood before God right now? Would you point to how your mom or your wife used to go to church faithfully or how you went to school and helped your neighbors out from time to time and made good grades and strove to be a good citizen and fought for what was right and moral? would, Would you point to how you were a good person? What would you do? Let me tell you that those are all just false gods. Family, education, career, good works. These are just all altars that we worship at. The Bible says no one is good. We are only good in comparison to that guy over there. Well, at least I'm not like him. I'm serious. We are good when we measure ourselves in relation to others. Maybe we're a little better than that guy. To other people, we deem as evil. When we're put up against the perfect measuring rod of God, let me tell you, folks, we fail. Every one of us. None is good. Not one. Only one can save us. There is only one true altar of worship that is acceptable, and only one person can bring us to it Jesus. Jesus is the perfect one, the one in whom heaven and earth meet, and the only one who can bring us to God. But to bow at this altar, we must forsake all those other altars. We must not come seeking to be entertained. We must not come merely seeking what is trendy or popular. We must not come just just because others are coming or someone we care about is coming to network or to get to know others. We must not come because we think we're worthy. All of these things must be left behind and we must only come with one confession. Lord, you are more precious than silver. You ever heard that song? Lord, you are more precious than silver. You heard that before? Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. Nothing I desire compares with you. In other words, we must come to know God alone not with all our agendas, right? Maybe if you're like me, you're thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor, when do I not have some kind of mixture of feelings and emotions and agendas in my heart? I know I often do. My motives are often mixed and my desires are rarely pure for just being brutally honest, right? Like these, these leaders there in Ezekiel say we come, but we have all this other stuff going on in here, don't we? Well, chapter 14, verse six says this, thus says the Lord God. Repent and turn away from your idols. Repent. So as we prepare to come to this table. I want to invite you to do that now with me. To go to God and just once again. We've been doing this several weeks now. Confessing our sins and repenting. And I think that's one of the big right responses and goals of this book. To call us back to the Lord in repentance and faith. So if you're like me, you hear that message. You hear those words and you think, man, i got a lot of idols in my heart. i got a lot going on in here that's not good. So let's take a moment now as we prepare to go to the communion table and let's quietly confess our sins to God, okay? And acknowledge these idols. God never grows tired. I heard I saw this quote recently. God never grows tired of forgiving those who are tired of sinning. So if you're like me, you're weary and tired of of struggling so often and so much with things, with these idols. We can always come to God and confess, and he will forgive. He will forgive.